Father, for who you are, how you work, the beautiful promises, Lord, of your word. Looking to your promises, us believing in those promises, receiving fully the reality of those promises. That's what it's all about. And Father, as we go through um, just our, our, our world, there are times that we do face tribulations, times we do face trials, and, and Father, they, they seem to come in opposition to your promises. They want to side rail us. They want us to turn to the right or to the left, and we just want to keep our eyes set upon you, Jesus. So again, we simply ask for a leading of your spirit. We ask that you would direct us. And then, Father, the things that you would show us, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we would walk these things and be able to walk these things. So again, Lord, simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen. All right, saints, Hebrews chapter 11. It begins here in the first few verses. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. As you look to this area, he simply opens up in this passage, now faith. And so he's, he's in a sense, what he's doing is, Keep in mind where we were last week, and we sort of made a note of this, that what the author of Hebrews has done in the first um, beginning in, in Hebrews 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, we were looking at, in a sense, just looking to Jesus. And in a sense, you could call it, these are the reasons for worship. You look to who he is, you see who he is, and, and you begin to worship because of who he is. Now, once we hit verse 19 of chapter 10, all the way down to the end in chapter 13, verse 25, it shifts from the reasons to worship to the responses in worship. It shifts from simply looking to Jesus to now living for Jesus. So it begins to shift where all of a sudden you're just looking at the Lord and you're looking at the Lord. And we've talked about this before, how a lot of what we see is in the first part of the, the book of Hebrews, it's, it's sort of like Hebrews 12, verse 2. Where in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it's simply just looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's just looking unto the Lord. And that's what we do initially. We just look to him and look to him and look to them. And we look to him in his greatness. And we saw how with everything that he was compared to, it was a comparison to the finite, which is great as they were, they didn't compare to the infinite. And then we saw this, the second part now as we begin to look at now the responses in worship or living for Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Now therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. So that's what we're doing. One is simply looking at Jesus. The other is now teaching us, lay aside these weights, the sin that ensnares us, and run this race with endurance. And so as we're looking to that area, keep in mind that where the author of Hebrews begins to move now to the principle of faith. And he says here in verse 1, now faith is the substance of things. And so what is substance? Well, substance is the reality. Um, so faith makes something into a fact that is not yet revealed, in a sense, to um, the senses. In other words, you may not see it yet transpired. You may not see it in fulfillment, but because the Word of God declares it, you already see it as, this is a fact, and I believe it. And so it says here, it's the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And of course, that evidence is something that can be proven. And so we realize as we're standing on the promises of God that what? It will be proven. It might not be proven the moment we're looking at it. It may not seem like it's being proven as we go through trials and tribulations, but it will be proven. And so as we, we look to that, um, keep in mind that as we go through this passage, we're going to see here how incredibly we're going to see these examples of believers, and these are believers in the Old Testament. Now, within these believers in the Old Testament, I, I want to share with you 
verse 39 and 40, just prior to going into looking at these saints. Because in verse 39, it says, um, of all these things, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Now here, they, they had obtained a testimony through faith. They didn't receive the promise. And then it says this, God having provided something better for us. So if these saints that haven't fully received the promise, if they're walking it, we've received something better. We've already received Jesus Christ. So they're looking forward by faith. We're looking backwards by faith, but we have all these evidences, things that they didn't have. As we, we take a look to this, we're going to see how initially as we start off with Abel, and it's, so, it's going to be so beautiful because Abel's worship is going to simply transcend life itself. It's actually going to say that, that he now dead, though being dead, he still speaks. His righteousness is still declared. His righteousness transcends life. Enoch himself, as his worship is going in the midst of this ungodly world, he's going to simply what? He's going to transcend. God's going to say, oh man, Enoch, I've been hanging out with you for about 300 years. I've come to your house every single day. Come to my house. And, and just this beautiful thing. We're going to see as a sense as Noah, as he continues to worship in the midst of his ungodly generation, that Noah himself will also what? He'll transcend. He's going to rise in this ark above the flood and he's going to be spared. And so we're going to see how Abraham, as he comes through, he has this partial promise. Moses is going to choose suffering and affliction over compromise. Joshua learns basically that the battle is the Lord's. And so as we look to this, I want you to see how all these people that deal with their, their generation and what's going on in their time, they look for a promise. And I think this is what we need to do as we go through our tribulations and as the author of Hebrews is trying to tell the children of Israel that he's writing to those early Christians, listen, don't leave Jesus Christ. Don't go back to something that is substandard, that is, is a shadow. Stay here with the real thing. So as we look to this, it simply says, faith is the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things not seen. So we do understand as we look to this that it is the substance, it's the reality, and it can be proven there are evidences. Now verse 2, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And so as they obtained this testimony, keep in mind that, that he also is going to say, "What well, I want you guys to have the, the same thing where he says, listen, remember in, in Hebrews 12, verse 1, we're surrounded by this crowd of, cloud of witnesses. Let's let your life, your testimony say what? It's a good testimony. I'm believing in the promises of God. So verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. God simply created everything from nothing. That's what he did. And everything that exists, everything that is, is in place that God says, I've made this. And amazingly, and I don't know a whole lot about science. I only know what people, you know, teach and what they say. But there's a reality that there is this center part of the, the nucleus of the atom. And then there's all these, the proton, there's all these electrons that are flying around it. Well, these electrons that are flying around it, that basically every atom is more space than substance. And yet we hold books in our hands. We hold our phones in our hands. And they're more space. And he says, I'm making this out of things that are unseen. And so I'm making this out of the word of God and the, the testimony of God. And he says, and we understand that everything that is a reality, all of these substances are what? Are proved because what? They were the evidence of things that what that hadn't been yet. There was nothing, and then there's everything. There's the universe, and this is what God is able to do. And as he begins to talk about how the faith goes into substance, now he points out these elders who had obtained a good testimony. He begins by Abel in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. 
Now, I want to pause here for just a second because the Holy Spirit, what he's going to do is he's not going to look at the fullness of all the lives. And so because of that, what I'm going to do tonight and why we're going to cover this chapter is I'm not going to look in depth and look at all of their lives and look at all the things about their lives and then trying to isolate the one point. Because what happens is this, their lives were full. Their lives had a lot of things that they did. And although their lives had so much data and so many events, the Holy Spirit chooses to look at a snapshot. And what happens if we begin to look at all of their lives and all of the events in their lives, then we're going to miss what this snapshot is. So I think it's important. Let's go through these snapshots. Let's see what these snapshots declare. And in that, we're going to find the foundation of the chapter. So rather than trying to do the foundational study on each and every one of these, saying, here's their lives and this is what they did, I want to look at these snapshots for just what they are. Because they're looking at responses in worship. Every one of them we're going to see here in their lives. And now keep in mind, there's enough you know, situations in the life of Abel and the life of Enoch and the life of Noah that you could do study after study after study. But the Holy Spirit distinctly through the author of Hebrews is trying to bring this to the snapshot of their lives. And so basically, how does walking look like in when they walk in faith? What does the walking of these believers look like through their situations? We see in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. I love the way the Holy Spirit brings out looking here at Abel first. Now, he doesn't start with Adam. He starts simply with Abel. As he starts with Abel, what he begins to do is this. He, as he comes through, he offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. I love the fact that he first focuses on the sacrifice. Now, we've covered this before as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, that what the priests would do is they would not look at the worshiper, they would look at the sacrifice. So if the guy comes up and he's missing an arm, they don't care that he's missing an arm, that he needs to what? You look at the sheep, you look at the goat, you inspect the sacrifice. And so what God does through the Spirit, he points out initially, look at Abel, and he was pleasing to God because of his sacrifice. That Abel was considered righteous, he obtained a witness that he was righteous because of his sacrifice. And, and think how that translates to us. Now, we're pleasing to God because of what? Because of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We're righteous before God. Why? Because of our sacrifice, because of Jesus Christ. And as Abel comes through here, as he's been made righteous because of the sacrifice, as we've been made righteous, what happens? Persecution arises. People don't like the fact that we can simply be righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't make us better than them, but it makes us saved. And so keep in mind as he now starts with Abel, it declares this, that God testifying of his gifts and through it being dead, and of course we understand that's the persecution, Cain rose up, killed his brother, and through that persecution, Though he is dead, he still speaks. And how amazing is it that this whole act of his gift and his righteousness, and though through it being dead, the righteousness still speaks. And so I love the fact that what he's declaring is this. Life is declared through death or life is declared beyond death. And death is not the stopper for the believer. And if we come to that area when we think, oh, the persecution, the persecution, all these trials, all the tribulations, look, if death doesn't stop the declaration of the work of God of righteousness, we don't have to worry about those things. We just persevere because we realize what? It's not about us. It's about our sacrifice, and that's the way it was with Abel. So he initially starts off with a sacrifice, the meaning of that sacrifice, that he was righteous. 
the persecution that came because of that standing with God, because the enemy doesn't want us to walk with God. And then in spite of the trials, in spite of the tribulation, in spite of this persecution, his life that he was righteous is still declared. And this is the work of God. That, that who we are in Christ, it will be declared forever and ever and ever and ever. So we don't ever have to pause on that. He moves from Abel now to Enoch. And it says in verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we see here now that Enoch is pleasing God. And this is an incredible thing. He just simply walks with God. And it says that Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. And, but before he was taken, he had this testimony oh my goodness, here it I am. I'm walking with God. And so he makes this statement in verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder. And as we look to Enoch, keep in mind that as we see Enoch there in the book of Genesis, that it says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Now, Enoch, and I want to share with you just a little bit of what he was going through in those 300 years. I want to read from you a portion from the book of Jude. I want to read verses 14 and 15. But it says this, Jude 14 and 15, chapter 1, of course. Now, Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And he prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So as he sees this, he's now declaring, I'm living in this life um, of a, among a people who were wicked. And as he was there, he was living and walking in the midst of ungodly years, uh, ungodly um, world, and he did it for 300 years. Just as a side note, I want to share this with you. This is kind of blows my mind. If you're wondering how does that work, you know that George Washington, President's Day, he was born on February 22nd, but he was born in 1732. 1732, George Washington was. That's only 289 years. Enoch walked with God longer than this nation. Longer than this nation has been, he walked every single day with God in the midst of a people who said bad things about the Lord and walked in an ungodly way and did ungodly deeds. And here we are. We're walking in just, what, 30 years, three years? I mean, it's going to get bad but 300 years he walked with God and walked with God and walked in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation that he was in and absolutely so wonderful that God rewarded him. God rewarded him by saying, come on home. Come on home. You, you've done what you've done. You've walked what I've allotted you and you were faithful in that time. And so we see that here God was with him and God walked with him and then God simply took him. God rewards him by taking him home. And that's why in verse six is, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch was not swayed by the world and the generation in which he lived. He was swayed by what? The promises of God. And even though he hadn't partaken of them yet, he still believed that they were true. And then we go to Noah. And with everything that Noah did, I find it interesting here that he says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, 
which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now, we know that Noah here, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, says that Noah was 500 years, and then he begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he was 500 years old when he began to have his children. Now, in Genesis 7, verse 12, it talks about it was in the 600th year of Noah's life that then God begins to send down the rain. And keep in mind that here for over 100 years, 100 years, Noah is doing what? Well, he's worshiping in the same way as Abel worshiped, in the same way as Enoch worshiped, simply by walking with God. Noah here worships by what? He's working, in a sense, for the promise of God. God tells him, I want you to build this ark. We're going to send some rain. Keep in mind, there's never been rain. But as Noah goes through, Noah here, he simply, year after year after year, he's faithful in the midst of his ungodly generation. Now, we know that the thoughts and the intents of the heart of all the men there were only evil continually. And so it's going to be at the end of the age. And so as we notice this, I just find this so beautiful that here Noah, what he does is he's working day after day after day. And what he was going to accomplish for God still wasn't done. Now, keep in mind that after the first week, he's like, well, I've got a couple trees down. After the first month, I got a couple more trees down. After the first year, and then after 10 years, and 20 years, and 30 years, and he's still not done. Day after day after day, he's working and he's serving the Lord in this one task, and it seems monumental. But God gives him enough time to complete it. And I find it interesting that how often do we have this tendency to say, well, I've been doing this for a couple years now and it's still not the way. <laughs> okay, wow, put yourself in Noah's shoes. Day after day, year after year, week after week, and what it says here about Noah is that he was faithful. And he became, notice this, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things yet to come, he was moved with godly fear, fear prepared an ark, for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So now we see that not only did Abel have that righteousness, Enoch is simply translated to be with God. And so, you know, keep in mind that that's where he has his righteousness. Noah now comes, becomes the heir of righteousness. Abraham and Sarah in verse 8 now as they start. And in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place in which he would receive as an inheritance. And as he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Now, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, he waited for the city which has foundations, who builder and maker is God. I want to pause there for just a second as we look to Abraham because I want you to see here that Abraham in verse 8 obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and as he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, how many times do we need, God, I need more details. God, I need more details. And God says, well, that's not faith. Faith is believing that I got a plan for you and I love how Abraham comes out really not having a full clarity of the promise. And now he's called to do what? Well, I'm calling you to this land. And eventually he comes to that land. But the believe it or not, in verse 9, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise. But then it says this, as in a foreign country. See, he realized that where he was going, really not knowing, God was showing him a bigger thing, that the promised land that he was going to was a foreign country. That wasn't going to be his real home. He was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So here, 
he's not knowing where he's going. He goes into this land, but even when he was in that land, he never built a house. God is saying, this isn't your real home. I've got a house for you. This is a temporary place. So while you're here in this place of the promise, it was the promised land, but that promised land was a temporary promise. It was what? It was a finite promise compared to the infinite. And how do we know? What's a tent versus a house? Now, some of you are thinking, ah, you know, I'd rather live in a tent than in a house, but, but you don't have all the amenities in a tent. Unless, of course, you go glamping, then you have more amenities. But when you look at what a tent is compared to a house, a house is stable, a house is, you know, for the most part, wanting to be permanent. And this is what Abraham does. When he comes and receives this promise, it's not the full clarity of the promise, and as he begins to walk in the promise, he walks knowing one thing, that I'm walking here in faithfulness, still knowing the promise isn't yet fully evidenced. And that's why it says, it's a substance, I know, but the evidence which I don't see yet, I'm in this land, I'm in this land of promise, but the real promise, I'm waiting, verse 10, for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then as you go into verse 11, it declares this. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child. And when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable in the sand, which is by the seashore. And these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now I want you to note here a couple of things that are prominent. It, it makes a statement here that for Sarah in verse 11, she received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful. And it says in verse 12, therefore from one man in him being as good as dead. So what we see here with Abraham in the second part of it is yes, he was coming with a partial understanding of the promise, but he, even while he was walking, realized there was a further fulfillment of the true promise. And in the midst here of him walking, he's learning one thing, that in the midst of death, Abraham sees life. Why? Sarah, her body to produce life is dead. Abraham, his body, there in verse 12, him being as good as dead. They shouldn't have been able to have children, and yet God said what? Through death, even though you're in the midst of death, I'm going to be proclaiming my promise, which is what? Life. And I think this is something that we need to grasp when it comes to persecutions, because this is what the church was dealing with. How often in persecutions are we saying, we're dying here, we're dying here, but we're realizing what? God has a future life. You can be dead here, but alive in Christ. And so understand what's happening. In the midst of death, Abraham now brings life. 
human being as good as dead, and then even though he were as good as dead, verse 12, were born as many as the stars in the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So it talks about the descendants of Abraham, how numerous they are, but then he declares this about those descendants. Verse 13, they all died in faith. So we see that what? There's back to death. But we don't have to worry about that death. Why? Because as he goes through, they're saying, they too seek the same homeland that Abraham was seeking. This world was a temporary foreign place. They were going to be ushered home. And in order to fully understand that, he makes the statement, verse 17, that Abraham, when he was tested, <clears throat> he offered up Isaac. And we see in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. So when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, offer him there for me. And as he would go there, when they were walking, Abraham already saw his son as dead. For those three days, he already saw him as dead. And then God would say, stay your hand. And how beautiful of a passage that is there in Genesis, because when Isaac is saved, when he says, okay, now he's no longer going to dead, it's almost as Abraham realizes, Isaac, you're back alive again. And then you don't hear a word of Isaac. It just says, Abraham and the lads went back. Not, 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 not Isaac. And so the people who were with Abraham, they went back, and you don't see Isaac until what? Until Rebecca, until the bride. And then all of a sudden, you see Isaac again. But I want you to see how the author of Hebrews begins to point out it's all about life and death, life and death, and how even in the midst of death, you can do what? You can see life. You can declare life. You can have life in the midst of this death. And within that life that we have, I want you to see what begins to transpire. Once we get to verse 20, as we go to the first descendant of Abraham, where it goes Isaac, then Jacob, and then, of course, Jacob to Joseph. But in verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So incredibly, we see that here Isaac blesses both Jacob and Esau. Now, it's funny how it's just not the blessing of Jacob that is the thing of faith, but also the blessing of Esau as well. What Isaac does is this, is through the blessing, he passes on the promises of God. He passes on the, the God of your father, Abraham. He's given us the land. He's given us the descendants. There's going to be the forgiveness of sin. All these things are true, but he passes on the promises of God. And he does so in this beautiful way so that now Jacob can receive everything that Isaac has. And so understand, pass on your hope, pass on your belief, pass on the faith. And so as, as Isaac goes and passes on the blessing, then Jacob in verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped laying on top of his staff. This is a unique thing. Now, keep in mind that in the book of Genesis, there's a lot of declaration that people say, well, not only did, did Jacob bless you know, the sons of, of, of Joseph, but he also blessed his sons. It, it doesn't say he blessed his sons. He, he prophesied over his son. He spoke to them of things to come, but he actually only blessed two. He didn't even bless Joseph. He blessed what? Joseph's sons. And he did so in a unique way. What he does is this. When Joseph sets the sons before his father, as his father wants to bless him, that, that what he does is he sets them according to the older on the right hand, the younger on the left hand, so you can have the blessings. And what Jacob does is by faith, he switches his hands and he blesses the younger and I find it interesting that he does this, and Joseph, who up to this point, you see him doing what? You don't see him sin. Joseph's life is almost like practically perfect. 
I mean, yeah, he's a little bit boastful as he talk about his dreams to his brothers, but you see him, what, he doesn't sin against his brothers, he's just truthful. He doesn't sin when he's in Potiphar's house, he's just truthful. He doesn't sin while he's there um, in the, uh, the prison, he doesn't sin when he's there um, second in command. And what I find is this, that, that Joseph here, or what Jacob does, is, is Jacob comes to this point of looking at Joseph's sons, and he says, I'm going to take the younger of them. And as I'm going to take the younger over them, I'm going to prophesy, and I'm going to give the blessing to the younger. He does not bless Joseph. Joseph was the second in all command. Joseph was the son that he loved, but he chooses now to put a blessing on his son's, his son's son, sons. That's his son's sons, yeah, his possessed sons in plurality. And so as he does so, keep in mind, here's Jacob when he was dying. He goes and he blesses the sons of Joseph. And as he does so, Joseph's one opposition was what? Dad, you're doing it wrong. He never sinned in everything he did until what? Until his father, knowing, being moved by God, moves his hands and Joseph what? He doesn't quite get it. The only time I see Joseph sinning is when he disagrees with his father over the blessing of his sons. Everything else in his life is perfect. But at this point, I want you to note this, not the fact that I'm trying to dig on, on Joseph here, but I want you to see that in spite of the opposition of his favored son, he still does what? He does what is right before God. He says, I'm going to act in faith. I'm going to step out in this. And although here it may seem like the substance and the evidence isn't clear, I know by fact that I'm believing in by faith in what God has done that this is the evidence. This is the reality. And so he goes now and he blesses the sons of Joseph. And now with everything that Joseph does, keep in mind that Joseph, he prophesied dreams. He was, you know, cast into a pit. We've talked about that. He went into prison. He was elevated to second in command. Look at what the author of Hebrews declares was the key principle. In other words, the snapshot here in Joseph's life. Not that he saved the world. Not that he was the one who interpreted the dreams. Not that he was the one who was in charge of giving everything, but by faith, verse 22, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave them instructions concerning his bones. With everything that he did, the only thing the author of Hebrews says is, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. That's the only thing. Not that he saved the world, not by that, by faith, believing in the promises, none of that. The only thing that he did was, don't leave my bones in Egypt. That's it. And I, I love this because what you see here in Joseph, he doesn't want his legacy, he doesn't want him to be remembered as what? Being in Egypt. I don't want them to think that I was in the world. I don't want them to think I was left in the world. I don't want them to think that I was content with the world. I, I served there. Absolutely, I served there. And I did everything that I was supposed to do. I lived in Egypt. I was sold into Egypt. I ruled in Egypt. But Egypt's not my home. Don't leave my bones here. I want my legacy to be what? In the promise of God, in that promised land. And so he sees this, and I love the heart of this, because his whole thing with everything that he did and everything that he went through, the whole point now of with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is what? Let's come back to the promises of God. Because all Isaac did was share the blessings to his son. All Jacob did was share the blessings. Truly in an unorthodox way, he didn't bless his sons. He blessed his favored son sons. As we see this here, Joseph, when he was dying, said, don't leave my bones here. I don't want you to leave my bones here. My legacy is going to be in the promise of God. My legacy is going to be, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there in the land of promise. 
And then we come to Moses, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was beautiful, a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Initially, we see Moses' parents. And by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden. So it talks about the, the parents of Moses, and it's interesting that his parents, even though there was persecution, they followed God. And it's, it's interesting that there are going to be certain times where we will have governments that are supposed to you know, guide us and protect us and watch over us, but they extend and exceed what they want in their own fears, and they begin to control and this is what happened with Pharaoh, that he was afraid and he made the command. And so he says, I want the, the male children slaughtered. And we see here that the midwives didn't rat out the parents of Moses. So they hid Moses for three months. So they literally didn't just abide by the dictates of the Pharaoh, but they went against his edicts to say, no, by faith, God has something better. And I think it's interesting because there's this huge debate that is going on right now in Christendom, and it's been going on for about a year. And it, it has to do with, you know, with COVID and what happened, and the government's response and the governor's response and mayor's responses and city's responses and people's responses and what should be the church response. And I find it interesting that there are certain times where you can see that if a government makes a statement or makes a law or make a regulation and God tells you by faith, this is my, my plan for you. My plan is this. My plan is to give them life. Now they want death. And it's interesting that our government was saying what? Well, we want to make sure that you have life. Well, I listen to Jesus and he says what? Well, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? If you're so interested in life, then let's get the people in the churches and let's make that a law so that we can proclaim Jesus Christ, that in him is life, that if you believe in him, you'll never die, that you don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about, about when you're going to die. And I love it how Jesus, there in Matthew chapter 26, the first thing that he does is he goes to his disciples and he tells them what? Don't worry, I'm gonna be just in just a couple of days of Passover and I'm gonna be crucified. He tells them exactly how he's gonna die. And then it goes directly after that that the religious leaders say, okay, well, I've got a plot to kill him, but let's not do it during the feast. And you've got to understand that, that they couldn't rush Christ's death, and nor could they postpone his death. They tried to kill him earlier, didn't work. He always passed through the midst of them. Now they say we can't do it during the feast. God says, i got a timeline for him. And the timeline is perfect. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you, don't be freaked out, because in this timeline, they, these wicked people can't rush my death nor can they postpone my death. It's going to happen the way God has it planned. And if Jesus's life and his death was perfectly in God's hand, then guess what? So is ours. I don't have to worry about things that the world says, oh, this could kill you. And yeah, it was true. It had a 0.002% chance of killing someone, but so does getting in a car in Milwaukee. You think about what's going on here. And so I, I love the heart of this. And I'm not trying to dig, you know, and try to accuse governments or trying to say, you know, that we as a church, we have to rebel in these things. But I think it's important to look to the heart of God. And when God tells you that life is the key, and, and that's what our whole government, they, they shut down our nation because what life was the key. Life was what we wanted. We wanted you to be alive. We're not alive until we're in Christ. And I think that as a church, we get this opportunity to say, I want to give life. I want to tell people about Jesus Christ. I want them to choose life, the plan of God, the person of Christ that they can live. But it's interesting that here in verse 23, Moses' parents, when he was born, was hidden because they saw that he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's commands. They weren't afraid of what was going to happen to them. Their life was not their own. I'm, I'm called by God to bring life to this child. I'm called by God to bring life to his child. And, and I'm going to do that in spite of what the king's command is. And then verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Christ, for he looked to the reward by faith. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by the dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. One thing that I want to make a note here, just for you note takers, that every event here in Moses' life that he says by faith, by faith, by faith happened before the law. It all happened before the law. And so we see that the events that were taking place, now make no mistake, it was an amazing thing. Moses was a great man, an incredible prophet. The law that he gave was, was holy, just, and good. This was all true, but the events that the author of Hebrews chooses to talk about faith was what? All pre-law. And I love the heart of it that Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That he says, I'm not going to let my legacy be here in Egypt. My legacy is going to be with the children of God, and that's what he wants. And so, although his parents said, I don't care about the persecution, I'm going to follow God. Moses here also chooses not to be a part of Egypt, and he rather to chose affliction. And I think this is so incredible in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. His legacy was the promises of God. His legacy was of the children of God. And I find this interesting that here's Moses once again. He could have been a leader in Egypt, but he chose to say what? I'm going to be a follower of God. I'm going to choose to be with God's people and so, verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He was looking ahead. He was looking to the city whose builder and maker is God. And as he's now looking for that, it says here in verse 27, by faith, the first time, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Verse 28, by faith. The second time, he keeps the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. And verse 29, by faith, they pass through the Red Sea. So we see here that in the midst of the persecution, that what happens is this, that God was battling the whole time. It wasn't Moses' battle. He could forsake Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and he can endure seeing what? I'm seeing him who's invisible. My eyes are on the Lord. And when your eyes are on the Lord, keep in mind that you can do the impossible. Think of Peter when his eyes were on the Lord, the wind and the rain. He was able to walk on water. He takes his eyes off the Lord. Well, then you're sinking again. But I find it so amazing that here he doesn't fear the wrath and he keeps the Passover. He keeps the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood. And then through that blood, we see here that now he's not destroyed. And all the firstborn are not destroyed. All who are under the blood, all who are there walking by faith, all who are taking the promises of God over what? Over the promise of Egypt. Now, Egypt would destroy them. God says, I'm going to spare you, and I'll destroy Egypt, and he does. And then through that, what does he do? He passes through the Red Sea. That which was going to be death because what? To the Red Sea was a barrier. Behind them was the Egyptian army. So it was like death in the front, death behind. And God says, listen, I'm going to part this so that you can come through. What would be death to you is now life to you. And what is life to you becomes what? Death to Egypt. And that's where it is, taking on that fragrance of Christ. And to us, it's a fragrance of life. To the world, it's a fragrance of death. And so we see here, he passes, you have the blood and you have the water. And it's so, such a beautiful thing. You don't fear the world, you deal what? The blood and the water, the blood and the water. So the blood, verse 28, the water, verse 29. And that's what we do. We go through um, where, where Christ, when he was pierced in his side, what came out? Blood mixed with water. So that's our salvation. We do see that. 
And so here's Moses in this beautiful way. He walks by God's plan. God, you have a plan for us. And you're going to take us in the wilderness. I don't quite understand where we're going. Why are we here in the middle of the Red Sea? Because God says, I want to show you my glory. I want to show you my glory. I want to show you the plan that I have for you. And so as he goes through, he's learning the lesson previously that will be passed on to Joshua. And what's the lesson that Joshua has that Moses learned? Well, it says here, with everything that Joshua did, bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, we see only this little snippet. And the snippet is this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So initially we see here that it talks about Joshua. And what Joshua was called to do is this. The walls of Jericho, verse 30, fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Joshua learned, I'm not here to fight. I'm here to walk by faith. Now, it was interesting that he did fight when he was there in the wilderness. There in the wilderness, remember there in Exodus chapter 17 at the end, when the Amalekites were there uh, among Israel and, and they were attacking them, that eventually God told Moses, I want you to go up on this hill and I want you to intercede. Aaron and Hur went with him. And as long as Moses' hands were raised, then Joshua would win. When Moses' hands were tired in a week, then Joshua would lose. And so through that, eventually, you know, Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands and Joshua prevailed. And after that passage, after that event, God told Moses, I want you to write this down and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Joshua, you have to know that your victory was not you. Your victory was spiritual. But when you come into the promised land, the first thing you have to realize is it's not, you're not here to fight. You're here to walk by faith. And, and, and the next thing that it is, he goes to Ai and what? And then he loses in Ai. Why? Because it wasn't by faith. Oh, I can do this by faith. It's just a little tiny town. So understand what happens, what Joshua learns. Joshua, in the most incredible way, realizes when the fight is too much for you, simply walk by faith. And that's what I love. He's just simply, the walls were encircled for seven days. That's all he did. And then they shouted, oh, God, you're good. That's it. Just walk by faith. And that's what he learned when he came in. And at the same time, we see here in verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, Rahab, again, you understand that she goes against her own king. And she begins to side with what? The king of kings, the Lord of lords. She sides with the children of Israel. And so as she comes, we see that here, that, that, that Rahab moves from the whole area of her people seeing the children of God as enemies to seeing them what? As I'm a child of God. And this is what the world does. If you ever notice that, that you can look at all the religions in the world and you can't judge the religions. They, they have a right to practice. They have a right to do their things. But the amazing thing is, for some odd reason, Christianity, that you can't practice your faith. They don't want you reading your Bible at work. And there are some companies that actually won't even let you read your Bible, have your Bible on your desk so that you can read it during your break, so you can read it during um, your lunch. Like You can't do that. You can't read your Bible here. Well, it's, the, the break is my time. The lunch is my time. I'm, I want to do that. This is who I am. And so keep in mind that we're seeing here that what Rahab does is she says, I'm going to put my life in with the children of God. And she does it by faith, regardless of what she could have died. She could have died, but yet not only does she live, but she brings her whole family into this place where you have that crimson cord. And so she moves from being this enemy of God's people into saying, I want to be a child of God. In spite of the, the, the trials, in spite of the tribulation, in spite of the fact that I could die, she brings in all of her family with her, shares this in the midst of one person could say, wow, Rahab betrayed you, king. And, but she still brings in her family. All who were there are saved. This is incredible when we look to this. 
And now I want you to see here in verse 32. He says, and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophets. So keep in mind that there's no shortage of material here. There's no shortage of that. There's just a shortage of time. And, and it's interesting. It says, what more shall I say for the time would fail me? Now, I don't have that problem. You know, I just don't. I don't have that problem. You know, there, there's that question that says, wow, you know, what does it mean when Lowell looks at his watch? And the answer is, it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. That, it just doesn't. I don't have the problem for the time would fail me. The author of Hebrews does. He says, I, I'm trying to make a point, and I could go on and on and on, and I can, you know, keep this going. But what I want to do is this. I have a lot more examples now, within the examples, what I want to do is I want to share with you, there's two categories of examples here. The first examples, verses 32 through the first part of 35. The second example, the second part of verse 35, all the way down to verse 40. Let me read you the first examples. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, also of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. It's so incredible that we see here that, that God gave them great victories, God delivered them from their enemies. And now look at this second category. It says here at the second part of verse 35, others, this is the other category, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Now, what's this second category? Well, these are the ones that, whether you like it or not, that, that God here chose not to give them victory over their enemies. God chose to allow their, their enemies to defeat them. But I want you to take and look a moment now back to verse 4 for just a second, because the very first point that he says what? Well, here was Abraham, or there was Abel and his sacrifice, and of course, we know our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, of, he obtained a witness that he was righteous. Jesus, we obtained this through his sacrifice that we we're righteous. But it says this, God testifying at the end of verse 4, of his gifts that through it being dead still speaks. You understand that his death, although he died, although he's like in the second category, people who were tortured, who didn't accept deliverance, their death still speaks of better things. And understand here that what we're seeing is this, that just because the situation may look like a defeat doesn't necessarily mean that God isn't in control. And I think it's important to realize that because think about Jesus Christ on the cross. All the disciples, everyone thought, oh my goodness, this is the end. And God said, oh, it's the end of sin. It's the beginning of life. As we look to this, I think it's important because what looked like defeat was literally the source of the greatest glory, the greatest work of God, the, the redemption of fallen man. What looked like defeat was simply salvation. And so as we look to this, keep in mind that there are these two groups. And, and most of us want to be in the first group. I want to be in the first group that God gives me victory over my enemies. Well, understand, there's a second group. And just because you think I'm going to walk in faith and I'm going to do this does not necessarily mean that you're going to be victorious over your enemies. Why? Because right now, we don't, we're like sort of like Abraham where we don't fully understand the promise. 
He didn't, fully, he didn't know where he was going. I'll tell you what, does that sound like us as Christians? I really don't know where I'm going. So what? I, just hold on to God's hand. Let him take you where he knows you to be. But don't judge the situation. And I think it's important. Never let your testimony in the midst of trials and tribulations be that declaration, God has failed me. God hasn't done it. God has not kept up to his promises. Keep in mind that his promise, although here in verse 39, these obtained a good testimony through faith, they didn't receive the promise, God having provided something better for us. See, they had these beautiful promises that were there, but yet they just had shadows. We have the substance. They had the, this, this good, and I, I think it's important that it says they obtained a good testimony, and, and it, was, it was good, and it was wonderful, their testimonies. We have the better. With everything else, remember how we said, how do you define um, Hebrews? Jesus is better. And then we moved a little bit to say Jesus is infinitely better. And we looked at, you know, it's the, the comp comparison between the finite and the infinite. But this is the key, that when you have these situations in life, what the author of Hebrews was saying to these Christians that were suffering persecution, they were hiding out in the catacombs, they were being put to death at this time, but he was saying, listen, some of you are going to have victories, and that'll be to the testimony of God. And some of you are going to have defeats, but don't worry, that still will be a testimony of God. This is all God's testimony, and he's got a plan for all of us, but, but make no mistake, and I think this is what's important, that we're here wherever we dwell, we need to be like Abraham, realizing what? That this country that we're in, the world that we're in, it's foreign to us. We're looking for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's where the fullness of the promise comes in. So I think it's important, and I think it's a good lesson for us to look at Hebrews in these snapshots that come out, because as we're looking to this in our Christian walk, what are you going to do? Are you going to be faithful to walk in the midst of persecutions, the midst of tribulations, the midst of trials, or are you going to simply say, well, I don't see God moving. I, I don't see the, the fullness of his promise. Understand the fullness of his promise is this. It's heaven. Everything else here, we're, we're trying to figure it out. The fullness of his promise is when we die, we go to heaven. That's the fullness of the promise. That's the promise of Abel. That although he's death, it still speaks. His righteousness is still being declared even though he's not there. Same thing here in the world. I want my testimony not to be of the legacy of the world. I want to be like Joseph. I want to be like Moses, who's not saying, the world, the world. How many times do you, do you want your kids saying, wow, you love the world? Or do you want your kids saying, wow, you know what? You love the Lord. Your, your life was him. Your life was this other, rather than, wow, you were caught up in all these things. Be careful because it's important to say, what is your real legacy? And this is not what you think your legacy is. I, one of these days, ask your kids, ask people who know you, what do you think my legacy will be? What will be written on my gravestone? You know, and, and there's going to be all kinds of things that people will say, oh, you love to work or you loved your music, or you loved this, or you loved that, and you can love all the things. Oh, you were a Packer fan, and you were all these other things. Or what? You were a lover of God. I'll tell you what, that's what I want my legacy to be. And, and where they realize, wow, I know that, that we're, we're my, I know my husband, my kids, I know, I know my dad, my, my grandchildren, I know my poppy, I know he loved Jesus. This is my legacy. I want not to have my legacy here. And may our heart be, God, let us have our legacy there, but can only be done when what? When you walk by faith. When you're walking daily and daily and daily by faith. And so it's important, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you so you can run the race. And it's simply done by faith. And so um, here we are, finishing a chapter. Father, we are so grateful for you. 
that you would enable us, Lord, to see a bigger picture, not to get lost in all the details of the enormity of the lives of these saints, which are incredible and wonderful, but you chose very specifically to bring snapshots, to bring little tiny instances out of all the things of Joseph's life, just don't leave my bones here. But these snapshots said something amazing to the church that was suffering persecution. Hang on. Don't worry about what this world does to you. You be faithful to me. Continue on in the work. Day after day after day, as Noah did, continue on in the work. Day after day, just simply walk with me as Enoch did, and I'll bring you home. All these things are so powerful, are so pertinent. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to an understanding of them, that we can apply them to our lives today. So 